0: To LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Christopher Blythe to talk about his new book, Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints, and the American Apocalypse, recently released from Oxford University Press. Christopher James Blythe is a faculty research associate at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University, as well as the co-editor of the Journal of Mormon History. He completed a Ph.D. in American Religious History from Florida State University, an M.A. in History from Utah State University, and B.A. degrees in Religious Studies and Anthropology from Utah State University and Texas A&M University, respectively. He was the Documentary Editor at the Joseph Smith Papers between 2015 and 2018. Christopher lives in Springville, Utah with his wife and three boys. I was privileged to read an early draft of Chris's book and have eagerly awaited its release, and it didn't disappoint. You are an engaging writer. Though you wrote your book for a scholarly audience, non-academics, especially Latter-day Saints, will enjoy it. It speaks to things we all wonder about, such as differences between folk tradition, folklore, and theology. Your book discusses these concepts generally by tracing how Latter-day Saint thoughts on the end of the world have evolved. So you begin your study by stating that the Latter-day Saints of the 19th century belonged to an apocalyptic tradition. Their very identity was entangled with the belief that society was headed toward cataclysmic events that would uproot the current social order in favor of a divine order that would be established in its place. That sounds pretty dramatic.
1: It does. I think this is really the way they viewed the world, that we were right on the moment of change. Certainly, Latter-day Saints still believe that we're in this last days period, waiting for this great change, that is going to be apocalyptic, that's going to go through some major upheaval, but eventually will be the kingdom of God established on earth.
0: I think some people may have heard that the first generation of saints were millenarian, but the apocalyptic tradition may be new to them. So let's start by defining it. What is the apocalyptic tradition?
1: In writing this book, I chose not to use the term millenarian. Um, millenarian is a term that gets kind of into the theology of how conservative Christians, well, Christians in general, define themselves as post-millennialists or millenarians, I think Grant Underwood's done great on kind of pulling apart the theology. What I wanted to focus on was the way it worked on the ground. Apocalyptic is a few things. A good example of this is the book of Revelation, story of a prophet who sees the future, sees the heavenly realm often, and then see how the world is going to face this great upheaval. And also, regular Joes use the term apocalyptic to describe destructions. Um, I wanted both those ideas to be present. I think there's a great literary apocalyptic tradition among Latter-day Saints. We see it in the Book of Mormon. We see it, as I show in my book, uh, through many lay members of the Church who've written stories about the last days, and then more so just about these themes. I think it captures the average person's imagination, the word apocalypse.
0: It does. It's dramatic. What are the main elements of an end-times narrative?
1: Apocalyptic narratives or end-times narratives often are a story of a better world. So it usually starts from an impressed people, either the coming forth of a, a conspiracy that's oppressing them, or an impressive government. And then Various acts of the divine, including earthquakes, civil unrest, wars, plagues, whatever it might be, that will act as a catalyst for change, that God's goal is to help the oppressed. And through these cataclysmic events, that social order is going to switch right on its head.
0: We were talking about end times narrative. They're stories people tell themselves. And this may be a little bit uncomfortable for listeners, that we are discussing these things that kind of have theological basis in our religion, but also we're saying there's a cultural thing going on here. My question is, what do these end-time narratives do for the early Latter-day Saints? What need do they feed? You said it's something that oppressed people do. Explain that more fully.
1: You know, these were people that were experiencing what they considered persecution widely. And what I try to do in the book is kind of hit these major moments of anxiety where apocalypticism really rises to the fore. And so moments like Having to flee Missouri. We see an increase of these narratives, or fleeing the United States in general and the arrival to the Great Basin. In each of these moments, apocalypticism is sort of the lens by which people are making sense of what's happening to them. We often see apocalyptic rhetoric and apocalyptic beliefs show up in Latter day Saint history in moments where we can actually see what I would call oppression the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the 1857 Utah War, 1880s when there's an influx of federal marshals to prosecute polygamists in the territory. All those moments are key spots where Latter-day Saints hoped and turned to Heavenly Father and prayed for a better time. But also, there's always this lens of the millennium and the events that will lead up to that in Latter-day Saint scripture. So the Book of Mormon is is focused on this sort of prophecy from the moment Nephi begins to write. We have the destruction of Jerusalem, Lehi's early prophecies. We see the destructions occurring several times. There's five major destructions in the Book of Mormon where society is rebuilt. I think it's part of a Latter-day Saint DNA. We know this is something that happens. Society becomes corrupt. We turn to Heavenly Father, and we try to help him fix it.
0: So we wouldn't necessarily know that this is apocalyptic tradition, but we know that this happens, is what you're telling yeah. me. So we wouldn't use that term. We'd go, okay, that was the cycle of pride. But you're looking at it and saying, oh, that's apocalypticism.
1: Oh, I love it. Yes, the pride cycle is there, the deuteronomic cycle, however we would like to phrase it. Um, yeah, is is the apocalyptic story. As I talk to people about in narratives, I'm so surprised that usually people come to it and say, well, you're talking about the literal end of the world, like things are going to explode and there'll be no more people. And of course, Latter-day Saints don't have any conception like that. We're thinking of a moment where society can be rebirthed.
0: So as a scholar of 19th century American religion, put this in context for us. So how did the Latter-day Saint notions of end times compared to others in the broader Protestant culture.
1: Latter-day Saints, like other Christians of the time, turned to scriptures like Daniel, Ezekiel, the Book of Revelation, except they also had the Book of Mormon to interpret these larger prophecies. Unlike other traditions, our last days narrative is based in the United States, certainly based in the Americas. It's also based in the old world, but the things we were most interested in would happen right here um, in the Midwest and the Rocky Mountains and so on. The idea of the rapture is going to be developing and becomes very popular amongst evangelicals a little after the Latter-day Saints are telling this narrative, but we didn't accept an idea of the rapture. We emphasized the idea of the gathering, which meant very similarly, as great scholar Grant Underwood points out, Evangelical Christians believed God would remove Christians from the earth when these great disasters happened. Latter-day Saints believed God would protect them, bring them to someplace safe on the earth. The purpose of Latter-day Saints gathering to locations and building temples is to fulfill that prophecy and to be protected uh, by Heavenly Father. There's lots of differences like that. And when I look at last day's movements at the time of Joseph Smith, We see some that have a lot in common. Groups like the Millerites are waiting for an imminent second coming, but Joseph Smith wanted to make sure the saints didn't associate their ideas with these other movements. For one, he was really uncomfortable with specific prophecies about the last days when it came to setting dates. That's true. But Joseph also had a revelation, and his revelation was that the Second Coming wouldn't happen until he was 85 years old, i.e. it wouldn't happen until 1890. This is an important prophecy because Joseph wasn't actually trying to set a date for the Second Coming. He was trying to respond to so many people in antebellum America that thought the Second Coming would happen in 1843 or 1844.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, as I read your book and the notions that early members of the church had, it struck me that they were a combination of the notions prevalent in the broader Protestant culture and Old Testament culture. And this mirrored so much of what was going on in the church, a combination of what was going on in their environment plus the Old Testament. When I think of as mainstream as you can get in the Great Awakening period, millenarian views, they were, let's be all really good, and then we'll usher in the second coming, even maybe prematurely, just because we're so good. When I look at the Latter-day Saint tradition and the things that you shared, sure, they did temple work, sure, they did missionary work, but also they thought they were going to be protected and other people were going to burn. And that is very much like an Old Testament view of we're going to be rescued. We're going to have a Messiah coming in as a warrior Mm -hmm. not as a peaceful person. So we have this violent tradition in there that maybe not so much in the broader Protestant culture. Have I characterized this? this? I
1: think that's absolutely right. And definitely um, before William Miller, so before the 1830s, we have very little millenarian, that expectation that there's going to be this great upheaval led by the Savior and there's going to be violence and earthquakes and so on before his coming. You don't have that until William Miller begins to to preach with missionaries and so on. And then we have tens of thousands, some scholars are saying hundreds of thousands of adherents to Millerism. And the Millerites really start that tradition that'll lead to other movements like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists that have a similar expectation in the end that we do. And also, there's a group called the Irvingites. So you're absolutely right. It's interesting, that difference between post-millennialism, where we're trying to make the world better to bring in God ourselves, to bring in the Second Coming, is definitely very important in the early Americas.
0: Now, we're going to shift gears and define another really big term that you use in your book. Cool. Vernacular Mormonism. What does that mean?
1: We use different terms. Folklorists use the term vernacular religion. Religious studies scholars usually say lived religion. And what it means is that you're looking at religion on the ground. So you're not just saying there's a difference between official religion and unofficial religion. You're saying that people always interpret their religion. You can never just tell a purely, this is what Latter-day Saints believe, and then you just list all these facts off. You have to look at it on the ground. Latter-day Saints are people of interpretation. Even our prophets interpret, make sense of their own revelations, make sense of Scripture. And so when I talk about vernacular Mormonism, I'm trying to look at not only leaders of the Church, but also regular members of the Church, And I'm trying to just make that point that we're looking at religion as it's lived, and so it's much messier. Um, I often make a point that when I'm doing vernacular religion, vernacular Mormonism, I'm talking about tendencies within the tradition or major themes. I don't try to say, Latter-day Saints thought this here and this here. I try to kind of capture larger pictures of how Latter-day Saints are viewing their faith on the ground.
0: What can we learn from studying lay beliefs and lived religion?
1: Yeah, I think it's the most important thing for us to study. You know, as a Latter-day Saint, I'm often tempted to correct people when they describe Latter-day Saint beliefs. I'm saying, wait a second, Latter-day Saints don't believe that. We believe this. Um, And so I want to have a pure understanding of what what Latter-day Saints are, right, what the Book of Mormon means to me. And that's just not how it works on the ground. On the ground, people believe lots of related things. And so by looking at lay beliefs and by taking them seriously, I can see how my religion actually operates in the world.
0: Now, is this any different than any other Christian religion? I know ours is a little bit different because we don't necessarily have a catechism. Mm -hmm. And so do you think there's a broader pool of beliefs in Mormonism than other religions, or is it just the same, and you've chosen to study Mormonism?
1: Absolutely. I think it is the same. I do think we have a special a special tradition of limiting our conversations in an interesting way, right? We go to the temple, we experience it, and we know that we should have sacred conversations in certain spaces. If we have a revelation, we know I can share it here, but maybe I shouldn't pronounce it to everyone. Um, When I look at vernacular Mormonism, I'm taking serious those conversations as part of the faith as well. When we talk about vernacular religion, all traditions have that experience.
0: How did apocalyptic Thought appear within the early and then the Utah period, and then also I know this is a lot, so we'll handle it a little, you know, one step at a time. But also, how did these notions shape lived religion during these two periods?
1: Yeah, we can see in the earliest period of the church a lot of people coming in and boldly proclaiming their own experiences. You know, we talked about this sort of post millennialism that's present. Um, and for me, I really think that's a theological thing. It's a This is what preachers are teaching and so on, but many people have their own expectations on the ground. So Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball are Christians living in this northeast area where they're familiar with all sorts of different ideas. I don't know that they're apocalypticists before this, but one evening, they go outside of their homes, and they look at the sky, and... According to their report, they hear soldiers, and in the sky, they can see men marching. That these men, you know, they can hear the jingle of their sabers and so on. This moment where they just stared up and saw this in the heavens, um, and, you know, they say several people were present for it um and they thought something was significant about this later on they realized this was tied into the appearances of well at least it was timed with the appearances of Moroni to Joseph i think we can pinpoint lots of these moments happening amongst early converts in the church one of my favorites is hiram page we all know the story of hiram page and uh his his seer stone it's also related to last days ideas but there was another experience hiram page had he prophesied in a church meeting that the stars would fall from the heavens. Shortly later, they had the Leonid meteor shower, in which Joseph Smith saw the the stars fall from the heavens one night, and everybody, of course, went outside to see this meteor shower, which Joseph believed was a sign of the times. And here we had an early member at the same time predict it. You see just a lot of these experiences. Wilford Woodruff says an angel appeared to him one night on one of his missions when he was still a priest that would explain last day's events to him. I think it's very common amongst early church members. Not only did they experience their own visions, they read about it in the book of Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, and they also talked about it. They liked to speculate. Joseph would sometimes encourage conversation and speculation, and sometimes when it got contentious, particularly when it got contentious on a larger scale, he'd preach against it. So we have some great sermons from Joseph interpreting parts of the book of Revelation, for example, where it had become a controversy amongst the saints, because one member would speculate and the others would tell him he was wrong.
0: They were also really, uh, I'll just use the word, obsessed with the book of Revelation.
1: Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Before we we talked, you, you mentioned intertextuality, and intertextuality. I think it's throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, I think the Book of Mormon points us directly. You know, I, I can remember the first time I read the Book of Mormon as before I had been baptized, and I I wasn't an expert in the Bible, but I'd read the Book of Revelation, and I remember reading about John the Revelator. Nephi sees John the Reveler. I thought, whoa, there's something about this. Um, so they. They were Book of Mormon readers and Bible readers, and so they took the Book of Revelation very seriously. But yeah, what they did was get obsessed with specific symbols. And so we can pinpoint several times where church leaders said, hey, you don't need to worry about these three frogs that show up here, right? There's a, That's an interesting tidbit. If I knew what that meant, I would tell you, but I also don't know. Brigham Young would say that. Joseph would say, uh, don't worry about the toes on the statue and Daniel, you know, all those sorts of things.
0: You know, this this end times, even I see fueling polygamy. They have such sense of urgency to get these ceilings figured out and where they're going to be in the fabric of heaven because, you know, it's just right around the corner. They can't just wait and see.
1: Plural marriage is absolutely based on the idea that the millennium's coming. And so we're trying to figure these things out. We need to figure them out now. And also an idea, you know, from the moment plural marriage was taught, by Orson Pratt in 1852, we're focused on there's a certain amount of spirits that need to get to this earth. So, let's do what we can to make it possible for them to get to righteous homes.
0: And it's and it's urgent. So, yeah, absolutely. we need to do urgent. it right now. As we transition from Nauvoo into the Utah period, we see a big change in this apocalyptic tradition, and it was very interesting for me because I could trace things in our folk culture and folklore from this Utah period, maybe even more than from the Nauvoo-Kirtland period. So how do these views change with the exodus across the Missi- right. Mississippi?
1: We have so much, and we have some of this at uh, Joseph's time, we have so many visionaries focused on persecution from the federal government. I think that's one of the really important changes. We also have many more participants in sharing this apocalyptic story. We're going to have newspapers be published in Utah, pamphlets and so on, where this story can be shared far and wide. So there's definitely more of an avenue to share this experience. One of the moments I find so fascinating, Stephen Farnsworth will have an experience, a vision he claims he had in Nauvoo. And This time, for the first time I can think um, in church history, an apocalyptic vision not received by a member of the church is actually preached by, excuse me, a leader of the church is actually preached over the General Conference pulpit. So Orson Hyde thought this was a powerful sermon um, or a powerful vision that was received by Stephen Farnsworth, so he got up and shared it with the saints. And from there, people would write down that vision from Stephen Farnsworth and share it with others. And there's dozens of copies that have survived at the Church History Library today. So I think it's a really key moment. And then the other reality is, just like it was at the end of our time in Nauvoo, is uh, 1857. We actually had um, a sense that the federal government was directly out to get us, and they were. Um, We have an influx of soldiers, um, a great moment of anxiety amongst the saints, and... uh, With that moment, we have just a huge influx of visions and dreams and people taking those seriously of how God will protect the saints um, from invaders.
0: Well, and I was very interested in what they came up with. So they were meshing what they they saw in the Book of Mormon— and what they saw in the DNC. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, we have Gadianton robbers in the mountains. Yes. And we also have Lamanites that are going to come down and save them from mm-hmm. the U.S. government.
1: You know, I think a lot of this material is based on a prophecy from Joseph okay. from 1832. The Civil War prophecy, section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, is Joseph in 1832 saying one day there's going to be a civil war, And as part of that revelation, he talks about the remnant who will rise up, which was interpreted as Native Americans, and slaves will rise against their masters, and this future Civil War moment. Latter day Saints decided not to publish that in the Doctrine and Covenants. We have the original copies from 32. They didn't publish in the Doctrine and Covenants. It would be published in the 1850s, first in the Pearl of Great Price. And then, beginning then, the saints began to publicize this revelation, which was the downfall of the American government. You know, there's going to be this future civil war, and Native Americans will play a role in that. This is a huge turning point. The saints are very passionate about this revelation, and then as it begins to be seemingly fulfilled as the civil war happens or there begins to be increasing conflicts, they take a new sort of urgency in sharing this. One of the things I found was that the Civil War prophecy would appear in dozens of newspapers, not always to just make fun of Latter-day Saints, but to say, "Well, maybe they're onto something here." One newspaper warned the Confederates with the prophecy, saying, "Look, you guys are going to get it." And what's fascinating about the source is that it it doesn't recognize that a Latter-day Saint was the one that wrote this prophecy. Right? This is like a like a Nostradamus prophecy they just happened to find. So very interesting. The idea of Native American sort of messianism, that they're going to come and help us. I think it's so interesting. Really, for me, the work of Jacob Hickman changed the way I thought about this prophecy. Jacob Hickman emphasized Amerindian apocalypticism in the Book of Mormon, saying that the Book of Mormon teaches this story that's unlike the way other people believed millennialism would work with natives, whereas most Christians expected natives would just be the sort of recipient of white Christians' teachings and civilization and so on, that the Book of Mormon and some of these other Latter-day Saint prophecies actually seem to teach that these Native Americans would take the lead of some things, like building the New Jerusalem, like protecting the Constitution, like uh, helping out the saints in these sort of dire experiences. Fascinating.
0: I want to talk about some folk traditions that I saw in the Nauvoo period, Utah period, and persist today. They're wearing different clothes, but they really, at their root, are the same things. So I want to talk about two things. First is dreams and how they've been interpreted. And the second one is demonology. Mm. Because I think both are really important Absolutely. To our folk culture, and when I say that, I'm not saying it isn't real, it's lived religion
1: I think dreams were so important to latter-day saints. A dream is an experience that all of us are familiar with in the Utah period, dreams became particularly important. Brigham Young didn't receive many written revelations, but he led the church by dreams regularly. He'd get up and say, "I had this dream of Joseph," and he was doing this or I had this dream that we should do this.
0: And so when your church leader is doing that, and, and we, we, like, at least on the surface, believe in the egalitarian nature of revelation, mm-hmm. then you take that into your household. And so you have a dream, and you wonder what it means. Yes. And I've been diving into 19th century letters for the last six months. And like, it can just be any dream. And I, I want to tell these people, it's just a dream. It's so <laughs> it's okay. It always doesn't have to have meaning. But it seemed like they needed to find meaning in their dreams. Yeah,
1: they so did. And people would have this experience. And, it, you know, sometimes you think, well, that's just a normal dream. But sometimes these seemed really significant to the individual. Sometimes they would push off a random dream, but they would sit down. So if you had this dream, what would you try to do? You'd pray about its meaning. You would sit down and share it with others in small circles. I love it. You know, if we jump back a little more, in 1843, Joseph Smith has a dream, and he wants to know what it means, and he tells it in a group, and Orson Hyde says, Joseph, I think this is what it means. And so there's this beautiful, for me, I think a beautiful expression of Latter-day Saints who see themselves as a community of people who are trying to follow the Holy Ghost and have gifts of the Spirit, and so are helping one another try to understand what that means.
0: This culture of dreams and sharing them persists.
1: Oh, absolutely. I find that one of the most interesting things. I had a student once who wanted to study this question of where did these charismatic gifts go? Didn't they just dry up? He was a convert to the church. And uh, as he was working on this project through the semester, he came to me a few weeks after the paper was due and said, well, I think my thesis was wrong. I think Uh, he had moved in with this Latter-day Saint family. Um, and they had told him about all these experiences he he says, "I think we just don't talk about them anymore in the same way that we once did. So where do we find them? We find them in letters and journals where people are limiting who they share these things with. I talked about Brigham Young sharing these dreams. We live in a time where we have a prophet who shares all sorts of experiences he's had, including dreams, and you know to use a scholarly term seeing apparitions and so on over the pulpit, and so we've had. Elder Eyring talk about finding uh, a genealogical name in a dream, right? That he hasn't been able to find in the records yet. So I think we can see, show that culture coming down. We just different eras were willing to share; others were not.
0: I'm going to transition back to our discussion of apocalypticism, something we don't really actually think is part of end times theology, but actually is really. Uh, integral to our concept is the definition of Zion. How has that evolved through the history of the Church?
1: Oh, I think that's a key point. Obviously, the scriptures give us different definitions of Zion, but early on, the average Latter-day Saint, when they spoke of Zion, might have meant the Americas at large, but they would often be talking about a last day's city. So literally, we're expecting to build Zion, a community that has all things in common, that's happy, that's one, and that's prepared to see the Savior. When we've built this city, it'll be united with the city of Enoch. All sorts of last day's events are predicated on the building of this city with its great temple where Adam or the Savior will preside. And then over time, It's not feasible for us all to gather in one place. First of all, we've lost access to the place we identified as Zion, Jackson County, Missouri. And so we begin to think of Zion as wherever the saints are gathered to build this sort of utopian city. But as we learn, particularly at the turn of the century, that we can't all gather in one place, we begin to point out that Zion can be built where we are. So gradually in the 20th century, um, really by the early 20th century, we have that idea That Zion is wherever we build it. You know, there's great quotes from prophets that say, if you're Chinese, you join the church in China, well, then gather to China and build the gospel. Um, This is the place for you to be. I don't think that negates our emphasis on this sort of last day's city or the importance of building a real community, but we've certainly seen how it's changed in our immediate expectations of how that'll come about.
0: And that was gradual. So, uh, like gradual. by the early 20th century, Zion wasn't just in the body of saints. It was Became the United States. America, yes, right? How absolutely. did that happen?
1: I think that's a key point in our story. We focused so much on building this deseret, really, in the West. And when we were finally embraced as part of the nation, we reinterpreted a number of prophecies. Um, how could we help defend the Constitution if we're not part of the United States? Whereas before we thought we'd protect the Constitution independently from the United States. Now we say, well, of course, we need to be actively involved in politics. And then we begin to see, particularly around World War I, that Zion becomes the United States. And so when we're worried that first the United States might have to fight in World War I, we say, well, Zion's supposed to be pacifists, so we don't want to promote the war. When it does happen, we see a lot of rhetoric among Latter-day Saints to say, well, Zion can't fall, so we know the United States will win this battle. Really interesting. That changes gradually across time, but there's still that sort of Americanism that has a a resonance, that old idea, I call it old idea now, that early 20th century idea that Zion's the United States itself. We see that kind of in Cold War rhetoric. But we, we return to that idea that it's a, it's a sort of spiritual place outside of any form of political government by li- the later portion of the 20th century, at least in the way I think of it. And at the point where we are now, really, Zion is an ideal that we're trying to achieve. It's something we can have in our homes when we live by the Spirit. But it's also a reminder in our scriptures and in our conversations about millennialism we would also say this is or the articles of faith. This is something that'll actually be built up literally in some sense.
0: What's the Terrible Revolution? The title of your book, which, by the way, is the best title of any book this year published, I think, and your cover is gorgeous.
1: Oh, thank you. So Terrible Revolution comes from a document called the White Horse Prophecy. And the White Horse Prophecy is a 1902 prophecy put together by a man named Edwin Rushton. Edwin Rushton claimed that he had heard Joseph Smith preach it in 1843. But really, when we look at the document that Edwin Rushton produced, it was every idea you could think about the end days that you could find scattered throughout the scriptures, scattered through popular discourse, all thrown into one document. That include all sorts of ideas, Native American defenders of the Constitution, an invasion on Utah, where the saints in Utah will be able to help defend the nation and protect the Constitution, stories about the role that the United Kingdom will play in the last days. Fascinating material there. And one of the prophecies, one of the parts of this that stands out, is I call the Constitution prophecy. It's a prediction that one day the Constitution will be imperiled, it will hang by a thread, and the saints will come forward and protect it. Today, when someone says, What do you think about the White Horse Prophecy? they usually just mean this one phrase. And if someone was going to answer that question, they probably, if they know Latter day Saint history, would say, Well, yeah, that shows up everywhere. Joseph Smith first made that claim, and the 18, I think we have a, a quote in 1840, if I'm if I remember right, where just us first introducing that idea.
0: I haven't really heard of that by the name White Horse prophecy. To me, what's come through in folk culture is just that one phrase: "The Constitution will hang on a thread," and that's what's persisted. Is is that what you found in the yeah. different iterations of this prophecy?
1: I think that idea, which existed before the White Horse Prophecy, has had its own track in the church, taught by many, you know, taught by Eliza R. Snow, taught by Brigham Young. We can show that showing up in church documents and from prophetic leaders all the way up to Ezra Taft Benson. In 1918, Joseph F. Smith, who believed this idea, would say, he didn't want people teaching the crazy idea about the white horse and the black horse. So he actually discounted the white horse prophecy, even though he accepted this idea about the Constitution hanging by the thread. And uh, I think that's because the larger white horse prophecy documents all about a future civil war. It's all about a renewed civil war, really race wars in the United States and violence coming from an international scene. He didn't want to get into any of that. Because he had preached against the White Horse Prophecy, and because people associated the White Horse Prophecy with just that phrase, in 1940, Charles Nibley, who was a bishop of the church at the time, would write an article saying, I I constantly hear people say, we don't believe in this prophecy of the Constitution hanging by the thread, but we do. And here's all the people that have taught it. And...
0: Well, he wasn't just a bishop, he was the presiding bishop. Yes. So we got some authority here. Yeah. Okay, so that leads into my next question. So we have all all these dreams going on. Oh, we didn't talk about demonology. I wrote it down. Let's talk about it now.
1: Demonology or, or sort of an emphasis on spiritual warfare, the idea, you know, section 76 where Joseph has this vision of the fall of heaven where a third of the angels fell and he sees them encircling the saints making war against them i think it was an important idea among the early saints joseph you know was cautious in the way he spoke of it you know he wouldn't share this full experience of the first vision until 1838 when he mentions his experience in the grove being held down um, i think he was uncomfortable making too much emphasis on it but on the ground Missionaries often told stories about spiritual assault on them, sometimes while they were sleeping, possessed individuals interrupting their meetings, and so on. This was rarely well, something. Like
0: even what they call the first miracle of the church yes. was the exorcism of a demon in Newell Night. What, yes. like five days after the church was formed? Mm -hmm. in 1830. So, I mean, it started from the beginning that there were evil spirits and they could possess you.
1: Absolutely. We can show various times where this shows up in church history. When the saints first arrived in Nauvoo, when it was still commerce and it was a wilderness there, at the same time the saints were dealing with malaria. We had many stories of possession and exorcism occurring in commerce. You know, one of the fascinating examples that I include in Terrible Revolution is the horse that's possessed when the saints leave Nauvoo. And so they kind of pray that the evil spirits will leave this horse. And uh, I love this exorcism because they say, uh, take these evil spirits and send them over to Warsaw, where all the anti-Mormons lived, right? And so you can see that occurring there. And I trace both the end of this sort of dreams are still important to us as Latter-day Saints, but dream interpretations rare. And also stories of these sort of evil spiritual encounters, they became less mainstream, at least less publicly spoken about really at the turn of the century. And we have discouragement from uh, placing too much emphasis on either of these things, on dream interpretation or um, satanic encounters. Anthony Lund, one of the apostles in the era, there's a great story that he records that relates to both these experiences. A man comes up to him and says, I had a dream that the devil came and he kissed me on the lips. And he says, what do I make of that? And Anthony Lund said, you know, sometimes a dream is just a full stomach, like he dismisses both things. Same era, Joseph F. Smith has a man visit him and say, your house is haunted by evil spirits. And Joseph F. Smith says, well... I don't think saints need to worry about anything like that if we're living good lives. So we begin to see those ideas are being dismissed over the stand. Nowadays, we often have stories from missionaries that sometimes experience the same sort of opposition from spiritual beings. So I think there are segments of the Latter-day Saint experience through the years, even as we've no longer focus on satanic opposition. The new handbook came out and even says, don't talk a lot about this stuff, right?
0: That's true, but we still have it at the highest levels of leadership. President Russell M. Nelson often invokes Satan motivating human behavior and how to avoid that. Which leads into what you said in your book is there was some policing that started to be done saying, okay, go ahead, have those dreams, but don't follow them unless they come from leadership. How did that change the way the culture looked at these kind of things and the voices that they listened to? I'm talking the mainstream here.
1: Absolutely. Yes. You know, Latter-day Saints are still having experiences, still discussing this in small groups, whether we're talking about sort of dreams, dream interpretation, whether we're talking about spiritual opposition, or whether we're talking about apocalypticism. We begin to be encouraged to keep those in private groups, and Latter-day Saints do. Now, at the same time we follow that encouragement, Latter-day Saint leaders don't follow that encouragement. Okay, they publicly yeah, are right. willing to and, share these experiences,
0: and then it, it's okay to listen to them. That that's what Absolutely. is in the in the unstated cultural thing mm-hmm. as well. If it's on the pulpit, it's okay. So that kind of leads into late twentieth century thought gets a seismic shift, and I didn't mean that as a pun. You know, okay. for end times when in nineteen eighty two. Elder Bruce R. McConkie publishes Millennial Messiah. Very important. Cannot understate how important it was in shaping end-time thought for the late 20th century and early 21st century. Still there. How did his notions both harken back to earlier times plus uh, represent maybe a retrenchment in official LDS thought?
1: Oh, that's so great. I think that is this key moment. He's he's doing a couple things that I think are really important. First, he refuses to go outside the scriptures. So when Elder McConkie writes this book, he doesn't quote Parley P. Pratt. He doesn't quote Orson Hyde. He doesn't quote any of these really, I think, these major apocalyptic thinkers, Orson Pratt. You know, we had the voice of warning this apocalyptic book that some people considered, you know, the the fourth book of scripture in the 1830s. Well, Elder McConkie has no need to draw back to that. He wants to make very sure that he's just reading the scriptures. That definitely harkens back to those voices, and he's he's limiting who has the ability to interpret the last days. He's also doing something interesting, which is to pull in American ideas of the Cold War. Anti-communism is… directing sort of lens to that book. We understand that communists are playing some role in the last days. When we read about fire in the last days, don't imagine fire brought on by heaven or something. This is the nuclear bomb. A lot of fascinating moments. This is the apocalypse for the late 20th century for Latter-day Saints. It also emphasizes Israel and events in the Middle East.
0: So he's shift Armageddon, hasn't he? It was going to be on the American continent. Not anymore. It's going to be in Israel. It was an aha moment for me, thank you, Mm, you. where I not only saw how he was interpreting this just through the scriptures, what that did was not only change or help us to reimagine end times, it also entrenched in LDS culture this desire to read the four books of scripture very literally mm. okay the old testament was not full of allegories. brigham young used to say they were stories bedtime <laughs> stories but not with elder McConkie. these were a blueprint for end times these were extremely literal
1: in a sense, it's uh, he's like a 20th century Orson Pratt. You can see that sort of literalism in a different direction through these sort of theologically-minded apostles that are even speaking different than other apostles necessarily. And so I think that's that's a great example of that. You know, his his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, who's emphasized that importance of let's base the doctrine on scriptures, and many people have said that that was sort of a a, a turn towards literalism and scriptural reading among slaughtered saints.
0: And we still are experiencing that legacy that really hasn't dissipated at all. It's still a very literal reading of the scriptures within official channels.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Laura.
0: What is the current status of mainstream apocalyptic notions?
1: I love... Being alive with this moment with Russell of Nelson as prophet of the church, I think he points us to the last days and the promises of the second coming very optimistically. Um, his message is you don't want to miss out. there's great things happening. None of that is sort of doomsday. you know this isn't a uh, a negative idea. I don't think there's a, there's kind of a, a debate when we read Russell M. Nelson or we hear Russell M. Nelson. Is he saying that these things are going to happen right tomorrow? And I don't know that he is, I, but he's using that message of the last days generally that we've had throughout the restoration to say, hey, let's remember we have a purpose and don't get distracted. I know you asked me as a scholar, perhaps, there, and I answered as a member, but I think that's where we're at, where last days events are portrayed very optimistically, that we're told not to fear the second coming, that we should focus on our day-to-day lives, that we shouldn't become overly zealous, but absolutely that great things are about to happen.
0: And I think we've totally lost the emphasis on one group of people who we feel resentful for being burned.
1: That is such a good point. We have. At that turn of the century, we began to say, let's not push against the nation anymore. A hundred years later, we're at the point where we—I mean, really—the most apocalyptic document we have is the Proclamation to the Family that says, "If you don't take care of your families, if you don't do these important things, the most basic things, then judgments are predicted." But for the most part, this is never pointed at. You know, Latter-day Saints aren't pointing to Lutherans and saying these are the bad guys, or or even communists anymore.
0: The church has done an extremely good job of policing who can have apocalyptic ideas, at least voiced publicly, and who cannot. But fringe voices still persist. Let's talk about that a little bit and how popular these fringe voices are.
1: I think that's important. As the church has policed apocalyptic discourse and visions, the vast majority of members have really followed that encouragement to limit where conversations occur. And there's been some sort of fringe movements that have gotten their start around apocalyptic discourse. So in the 1990s, for example, there was the community of Manti that was holding firesides. Church leaders came out and held various meetings warning people about uh, this, these sorts of communities, these sorts of groups. And in response, there were several excommunications in Manti, and from that, the true and living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days was founded. We see groups that hover around the fringe of the Church that become very focused on apocalypticism. I think it's so important not to label all of members who are just interested in the second coming a sort of fringe. I think there's lots of members who keep food storage and so on that are trying to follow the prophet and are also very interested in these things that are just normal members. And they might belong to online communities that talk about these things too. And I, I don't think there's necessarily fringe about that, but there is fringe elements, particularly now that – unite the ideas of apocalypticism around energy work or um, specific visionaries that write books or share their own visions, that creates sort of a subgroup of church members. We're talking about tens of thousands of people, particularly in Utah, that have become interested in this direction. Among that group, the vast majority um, believe that they're normal members of the church, that they're following the prophet, but there's also a fringe of that fringe who would kind of see the church as corrupt and so forth. So it's a really an interesting hodgepodge group of people.
0: Before we conclude this discussion, I'd like to share some comments and questions from a Latter-day Saint Perspectives listener who lives in Ohio. By the way, he read your book after coming down with COVID-19 while he was on quarantine. Somehow, that seems to fit in with the theme of our discussion today of end times. This is from him. Quote, I really enjoyed the book. It's long and expensive. Holy smokes. (laughs) I will say he did get a complimentary copy, but he did not see the price but is well-written and reads easily. I was amazed at how much ground it covered. The author refers to Grant Underwood's the millenarian world of early Mormonism throughout, which I'm not familiar with. Unquote. So, why does the discussion of Mormon apocalypticism need to engage with Dr. Underwood's book? How important is Underwood's work in understanding the early saints? Um, That's my question.
1: That's a great question. Grant Underwood's book was, I mean, I've already talked about him in this interview, it was groundbreaking. It's a wonderful book that really focuses on theology, trying to relate Latter-day Saint ideas to really, I think, evangelical ideas. Um, It's written in the 1990s at a time where lots of scholars, Jan Schipps, Philip Barlow, were writing books aimed to say Latter-day Saints are Christians, but they're a little different. And it shows us some of those ideas. He has several insights that I think are just crucial, and my book would not be possible to to write without some of those insights. Grant Underwood's book is it's about fourteen years, and so it's this wonderful study of Joseph Smith's thought and Joseph Smith's thought as understood through Parley P. Pratt and others of these sort of founding apostles. His his point, and I loved this. It's changed the way I thought about doing history was that you can't just study Mormonism and say what the scriptures say. You have to look at interpretation. And so he turned to these major thinkers. And so I took that same idea and said, well, you can't just look at these major thinkers. You got to look at everyday individuals. I think uh, just a wonderful book that I try to almost summarize in the first chapter of mine to lead the reader along the way but I still think it's a crucial book.
0: This is our listener again. So this book is about Mormon apocalypticism. It seems that most of the good things about the end of the world, the triumph of the second coming, the making right of all wrongs, the joy of the millennium, is to be found on the other side of death, destruction, and violence. When I was a missionary, we enjoyed talking about Wilfred Woodruff's visions of the last days, etc. I suppose it had the effect on us of being scared straight. But now that I'm older and have these discussions with friends who have kids, good jobs, and comfortable lives, the idea of going through the cataclysm of the end of the world is much less appealing. (laughs) Here's his question. Did Dr. Blythe come across anything that would suggest that it's possible to escape the violence and destruction of the last days and that the millennium might be ushered in peacefully?
1: Wow. No. No, the the millennium is going through this transition. So early Latter-day Saints and present Latter-day Saints expect that this isn't going to be a smooth transition. However, some Latter-day Saints, particularly after the Civil War, said, we've already experienced this violence. It's already happened. You can already see earthquakes and plagues and judgments. And so from their perspective, maybe we're not waiting for more of it. Maybe we've already experienced it. And I think that's such a great point about how once we're in this really good situation, if you're a middle-class American or upper-class American, you probably aren't looking forward to the apocalypse. The apocalypse is a story told to the oppressed. These are people that aren't doing very well, and you're hoping for a more just society to be brought about. So if you're living your day-to-day life and a comfortable lifestyle, it doesn't sound great.
0: Dr. Blythe, okay, Here, here's a more difficult one, okay? Yeah, I know it's not comfortable theology, and we're into comfortable theology in the 21st century, don't you think? Maybe that's why the appeal within the mainstream has kind of dissipated a little bit.
1: Oh. Yeah, we are. In the book, I focus on the comfort of being like other Americans. We We don't want to raise attention to ourselves with sort of off-kilter ideas. And you see that, you know, beginning in the early 20th century when these things are discounted um, or we're told not to focus on. I think it's often for that point. Actually, Joseph, even during his lifetime, is discouraging some public talk because he doesn't want to Arouse the anger of their neighbors. Don't talk about Indian raids that'll happen in the future because they're going to think we're not team players. We're scarier. We're, we're scarier. And they didn't. Right, <laughs> right.
0: He was right there. <laughs> okay, I, I love this. I want to see how you respond to this. Dr. Blythe also talks about vernacular religion and bringing the voices of the lived experience of the laity into the scholarly discussion. I think it's interesting to have these voices documented from a historical perspective, but I wonder if it warps the reader's perspective a bit by amplifying these extreme voices. I like to think my upbringing in the church was pretty typical. We had a garden and canned our food. And yet I cannot relate to Joanna Brooks's parents casually pointing out possible targets for Russian nukes in their neighborhood. Tara Westover's family living completely off the grid and eschewing modern medicine and higher education is totally foreign to me, not to mention antithetical to church teachings. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to this listener's concern?
1: Oh, I think that's great. I think that's right. When we're looking at... Tara Westover, I mean, I use Tara Westover as an example to say this wasn't the Latter-day Saint experience. By the time we're talking about what she actually said, she makes that point herself. Her family was ostracized by their emphasis on Y2K. Regular Latter-day Saints avoided them. It was a strange thing. Joanna Brooks' experience in the 1980s, I think it's obvious that her family was a little overzealous, but I don't know that... I, you know, I was, in, I was an Episcopalian in the 1980s, but my own father would speak to me about some last day's events. I think it was really everywhere in the 1980s, and conversation about conservative Christianity. People were expecting there to be additional conflicts with Russia and so forth. And so
0: This isn't kind of an, an embarrassing revelation, but I will share it. I was teaching relief society in the 1980s. And I remember being so proud of myself because it was a lesson on the second coming. And so I had the material from the church, but also I had Bruce R. McConkie in my side pocket. And I made this great handout with 25 signs of the times of things that had to happen. And I was so totally convinced that these were going to happen and then we were going to have this millennium. We knew there was like no uncertainty because... Elder McConkie had figured it
1: out for us. (laughs) I think that's right. And in the 70s and 80s, where there was enough time, you know, once we get closer to 2000, church leaders say, hey, you know, we don't need to emphasize these things. But in the 70s and 80s, where there's that that sort of one generation away, I think, yeah, it made sense. Particularly, we're having all these conflicts as Americans. I mean, this isn't just a Latter day Saint thing.
0: And then I'm going to give you another buy as well. When I read this question, I thought, yeah, Julie Rowe, just, you know, she's just one voice. And, you know, I don't think she has a lot of credence. But then I can also see your perspective as a scholar saying, yeah, Julie Rowe may seem like she's out there, but there's tens of thousands of people buying her stuff. Yeah, So you have to cover it. I mean, she must be tapping into something within Latter-day Saint culture, some need that isn't being met by mainstream sources.
1: I document a series of different near-death experience visionaries that write about the last days and have become celebrities in Utah, really, with tens of thousands of fans, devotees, I don't know what we would call them, individuals that take their work very seriously. When I talked about Julie, and I think they're all, I think they're all bringing in older ideas that really didn't disappear in the 19th century, but they're bringing them back to the fore for this group. They're collecting them together, and they're presenting them through their own visionary experience. Um, And so they resonate with lots of people. Your listener before mentioned Wilford Woodruff's vision on his mission. Well... We don't talk about that vision anymore, but if you're interested in Julie Rowe, she's kind of represented it in a different way. You can read about it over here. Very fascinating. When I wrote about Julie Rowe, what I really wanted to do was focus on why she wasn't as successful as another visionary named Spencer. Spencer has had one of the best-selling Latter-day Saint books for the past however many years, you know, 6-7 years. Um, it's sold over a half a million copies now, called Visions of Glory. And so I look at these two and ask the question of why Spencer's been so successful, and Julie Rose really had muted success compared to that. I think it's because Julie Rose tried to build a celebrity. We can see what we're really uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with visionaries saying, you know, pay attention to me, let me teach you things, um, new doctrines, new ideas, and buy my future books and so on. Whereas Spencer is a guy who wrote anonymously and wrote one account and sent it out there and said, "I also shared this with an apostle and you know he said, Keep it to yourself until you feel impressed to share you know he had this story to share, but people ate that up, and so Spencer you know this one experience has tons and it continues to expand his influence, which I think shows where latter day saints really want to abide by that rule that we don't share our experiences to build ourselves up, or so on.
0: We didn't address one of the listeners' concerns, and I want to talk about it now, because reality of publishing academic books in the 21st century, they are not cheap. They're they're so pricey, and and they've gotten even more pricey, I think, in the last just two years, like doubled in price. Yes. So you have a Facebook page, and you've put forth good ideas to people who would like to read this book but yeah. just can't afford it. You want to talk about it, that? Oh,
1: I think that's right. You know, academic books today can be very pricey. This book is seven, you know, cover price $74. Um, so what I I really think the book's right now is at 65 libraries. It's only been out a week, you know, it'll that'll double or triple. But I, one of the best things you can do is just recommend that your library picks it up. Every library I'm aware of that has a website has a link where you can just request a book and then you can write a reason why you think this is important. Another way that you can access the book is through Oxford Online. So if you have any connection with a university or a library that subscribes to Oxford Online, you can access it that way. Yeah, I really hope that the ideas in this book gets out to people. I'm not so concerned about trying to convince as many people as possible to pay $74 dollars um, so I hope we see this book shared. you know the greatest thing for an academic scholar is if someone buys their book and then lends it to a friend for a few weeks
0: That's true and and I do that all the time. These books that I, I use in LDS Perspectus podcast I highlight them and then I find someone one to give them to. You know, it's like, okay, I've read this. Now it's someone else's turn to read it. But don't feel like your library is not going to buy this book because I found they're very receptive to buying books, and especially one with such a great title. It's like the librarian's going to say, oh, that looks really interesting. Also, I'm not here to sell books. I'm mm-hmm. just here to present the material. That's part of the reason for LDS Perspectives podcast mm-hmm. it is okay, you can't get a hold of this book. Maybe you live in in uh, the Mariana Islands. You know, it's not right. really practical for you to get this book, but hopefully we've shared some of the ideas and, and piqued your interest because I really feel like this is an important piece of research because not only does it talk about end times, it, it talks about how we think the way we do about our religion. Thank you so much for sharing your scholarship with us.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Laura.
0: Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices. Thanks for your interest in our new Comments and Questions from Listeners feature, where you have the opportunity to give feedback to Latter-day Saint scholars, as well as having your questions asked. Listeners can access a list of upcoming interviews from the Latter-day Saint Perspectives Podcast Facebook page. From there, click the Send an Email button and let us know what you thought about the author's work and any questions you may have after your reading. Your submission will be entered into a monthly giveaway of featured books. If your questions and comments are featured in an episode, we will send you a $25 Amazon gift card as a thank you. If Facebook isn't your thing, email us at ldsperspectivespodcast at gmail.com for a reading list.